Welcome to Slough Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. It's hard to get through a day without hearing about or discussing immigration in the United States. The landscape is challenging and law under the new administration is constantly evolving. I'm Corey Dugas, and today we're joined by Professor Richard Middleton. Professor Middleton is a practicing immigration law attorney and an adjunct professor at SLU Law, teaching in immigration law. He's also a professor of political science at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you this afternoon. Well, let's start off with the basics today. So what is the process for an average person to immigrate to the United States? And I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about what some of those roadblocks are to historically while you talk about this. Well, certainly. When you think about immigrating to the United States, we primarily have to turn to federal law, federal statutory law. We're talking about the Immigration and Nationality Act. We sometimes call it the INA. Under the INA, there are really three primary ways a person can immigrate to the United States. That's through a family member, what we call family-based immigration, through an employer, what we call employment-based immigration, and there's something called a diversity lottery. And it really is a lottery. What happens is, is that individuals who are nationals of countries who have been selected to participate, and the way those countries are selected is we look at the sort of the rates of immigration historically, and there are countries where uh, historically, we've had low levels of rates of immigration. Mm-hmm. Nationals of those countries are eligible, eligible to participate in the lottery. And what they have to do is actually submit their names as part of this process through a sort of an electronic process. And they can, if selected, they can immigrate through the diversity lottery. So really three primary ways, family-based, employment-based, and the diversity lottery. And so with family and employment-based, mm-hmm. that would mean a family member or an employer is already in the United States? Correct. Okay. Typically, we're talking about a family member who has standing under the law, a person who's a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident or an employer mm-hmm. through employment-based. Mm-hmm. So how has this changed under the current administration? Have we seen big changes or what's going on? Certainly. There has not been much change in terms of statutory law. Uh, as you know, statutory law is, is the uh, responsibility of the U.S. Congress. What we've seen, however, is sort of a change in priorities of enforcement. Uh, For example, under the Obama administration, emphasis was placed on removing individuals who presented a significant threat to the domestic home front, those individuals who have been convicted of serious crimes. Under the current administration, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of uniform uh, policy as it relates to who is going to be uh, high priority for purposes of removal. But the uh, current attorney general has emphasized that ICE should uh, bolster its enforcement activities and attempt to uh, remove individuals who have committed any range or cadre of of criminal um, infractions. Mm -hmm. So this includes misdemeanors? It it includes misdemeanors, yes, absolutely. And you'll see individuals who may have been uh, stopped in a, a, a traffic stop for routine traffic stop who then are placed in criminal proceedings, for example, for driving under the influence, what have you. Uh, Ultimately, they may receive a conviction or 
quite frankly, be placed on probation. But then that leads to an enforcement activity by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And those individuals uh, ultimately then could be put into removal proceedings. This is quite a big shift that we're seeing. So yes. there's also been movement in the federal court to block the president's executive order. Right. But with the recent Supreme Court decision, where where are we standing with that now? That's a great question. Uh, that per curiam decision was handed down on Monday, June 26th. And it's interesting because if you read it, what it really uh, focuses on more is sort of the equities involved in analyzing an injunction. Uh, what you have is that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, those two courts, uh, issued injunctions staying enforcement of uh, two respective executive orders. Those uh, two matters ultimately made their way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court was challenged with analyzing whether or not those stays should be continued or if they should be uh, sort of uh, removed in, in total or in part. And what the court, what the U.S. Supreme Court uh, decided was that in a per curiam decision that part of the stay uh, would be continued and part of the stay would actually uh, be sort of uh, quashed. And what we're seeing is that the court sort of looked at the equities involved in an injunction, what harm would be caused to the moving party, uh, likewise, what cause would be harm to the non-moving party, as well as a third party, and that's the public at large. And the court said, well, here, when we're talking about an injunction, we have to ask ourselves what harm would be done to the government, in this case, the executive branch, if its executive order uh, were quashed. And the court said, as it relates to individuals who have a bona fide relationship to a person or an entity in the United States, those individuals have standing and those individuals can demonstrate potential harm. And so the court said, we'll quash the, uh, well, excuse me, we'll continue the stay. Mm -hmm. We'll continue the stay for, as it applies to those persons. But we'll quash it as it applies to individuals who have no relationship, no bona fide relationship uh, to a person or an entity in the United States. Now, what's interesting about that language, the bona fide relationship, mm -hmm. is it mirrors language from another case that's very important in immigration law. And that case is styled uh, U.S. versus Verdugo Urquides. Uh, and in that case, Chief Justice William Rehnquist articulated language that is very similar, has a parallel, and that is looking at whether or not an individual has a significant or sufficient contact to the United States. And in that case, the ultimate question centered on whether or not the Fourth Amendment's uh, exclusionary rule apply to uh, aliens. Uh, and in that case, the court really didn't have to answer that question because of the, of the nuances of the facts. But the court said, if we were, in essence, to answer that question, the test we would use would be whether or not the alien, the non-citizen, has mm -hmm. sort of significant or sufficient contacts or ties to the United States. So we're seeing that language sort of uh, arise again. Here is bona fide relationship and neither one of these instances has the court opined on sort of what that means, mm -hmm. giving us any manageable or articulable standards or a criterion that we can use to determine whether or not a person has sig significant or a relationship or bona fide relationship to a person or entity in the United States. And what ultimately happens is it's decided on a case-by-case -case basis by the courts, or in this case, 
under the current administration, what we suspect will be by bureaucrats, by individuals uh, with ICE, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and perhaps USCIS, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about going through perhaps the administration of those organizations rather than going through the courts. Bureaucratic Mm decision-making, which ultimately may be challenged then and uh, answered by the courts. And this puts us in an interesting situation without that term being specifically defined. Absolutely. And what it can create is, quite frankly, disparate application Mm -hmm. or what some uh, observers are calling potential chaos. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of talk from people on both sides of the immigration argument sort of about rights Mm -hmm. and um, the rights of different individuals. So what kind of rights are in limbo under this order? Well, certainly... uh, If you read the per curiam decision the court issued on Monday, June 26th, they touch upon that question. And what the court said was that, you know, an alien, a non-citizen who is seeking entry into the United States, and that person uh, has no ties whatsoever to a person or an entity in the United States, the answer is that person has little to no rights. Uh, There's a case style Bridges versus Wixon, and in that case, Justice Murphy says that when an alien uh, abroad is seeking admission to the United States for the very first time and is sort of knocking on the door, seeking to come in, that person brings with him or her no rights under the U.S. Constitution. Now, there may be sort of rights that we can talk about under international treaties and conventions, but as it applies to federal, U.S. federal law and the U.S. Constitution, there are little to no rights, quite frankly. Wow, that's that's unusual, and that was not how I was necessarily anticipating you would answer that question. So um, it, it's interesting to hear that, and perhaps a little disheartening at times that there may be no rights for those individuals. Well, and, and, and the, it's part of what we call inherent sovereignty. Uh, there are a lot of cases, uh, if you see cases such as the passenger cases, um, mayor of New York versus Henderson. And in those cases, the uh, Supreme Court has opined that there's a certain degree of sovereignty, inherent sovereignty that the U.S. Congress has to protect Mm -hmm. our nation. And because of that, aliens don't have any constitutional rights, any sort of inherent rights that they bring with them to be admitted to the United States. Now, this may make you feel a little bit better. The U.S. Supreme Court has also said that once an, an alien has effectuated an entry into the United States, particularly a lawful entry, Uh, That person then has certain rights under the U.S. Constitution, among them uh, equal protection, due process of law under the 14th Amendment, equal protection under the Fifth Amendment, uh, and due process of law under the Fifth Amendment, the equal protection component under the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Also certain rights uh, as they apply to the Sixth Amendment uh, when an alien is in criminal proceedings. So there are rights available to non-citizens once they effectuate an entry into the United States. Okay, well, you're right. That does make me feel a little bit (laughs) Okay, excellent. So where do you see things going from here? Well, who knows? Uh, Quite frankly, uh, I find that every day myself, I'm wondering, you know, what direction we're going in because there doesn't seem to be a policy that's uh, sort of crafted with any particular um, humanitarian goal in mind, any particular um, sort of long-term policy goal that we want to achieve as a country in mind. It seems sort of that there's um, the idea that there's an 
a cadre of individuals that exist in this universe who the United States needs to, to keep out, that we need to block from entry, and that we're sort of hell-bent on um, pushing that policy and a lot of other important policies are sort of not being focused on, or sort of falling by the wayside. For example, deferred action uh, for childhood arrivals. That policy continues, but there's really question about you know how long that's going to continue. Uh, deferred action uh, for parents of uh, children who are Americans. What was going to be uh, called DAPA that was actually uh, stopped by a court in the Fifth Circuit. Uh, so things of that nature. Also. Uh, the wet foot, dry foot policy, there seems to be a reversal of some of the uh, policy changes made under the Obama administration. Things such as uh, temporary protected status for Haitian nationals in the United States, that's set to expire. A lot of these important issues are, are not really uh, being focused on. Mm -hmm. So it's a big shift. So what kinds of challenges are ahead for those that are looking to become U.S. citizens? Clearly, there's multiple challenges, but maybe if you can just hit on one or two that you think are the most daunting. Well, many of the challenges remain sort of um, at the grassroots level, and those are the process of actually filing for immigration benefits, um, knowing how the process works, access to adequate legal representation or advocacy. Uh, the process involves sometimes very expensive uh, filing fees that many individuals cannot afford. Uh, in some instances, there may be waivers of those fees, but in other instances, there are no waivers available. So it may be cost prohibitive for individuals to uh, file for immigration benefits. Uh, some other barriers include actually compiling the body of evidence and documentary evidence needed to support a petition. Oftentimes that's quite laborious for an individual to do. And in some instances, an individual may not have the necessary documentary evidence that they need to submit with an immigration petition. And there are others. That, mm -hmm. That's just a, a sampling of a few. Are there any specific issues for immigrants in St. Louis? Well, specific to St. Louis, mm -hmm. Well, what would be specific to St. Louis would be sort of the uh, environmental factors uh, sort of endemic to our region and our, our metropolitan area. Uh, but many of those are, uh, are similar to uh, other communities, such as uh, sufficient uh, resources in the community, individuals who can uh, help with language resources, translation, interpretation, uh, individuals who can provide uh, basic everyday needs such as transportation, uh, to and from uh, work, transportation to and from doctor's appointments, things of that nature. Also individuals who work in the immigrant community to make individuals feel sort of welcome and at home uh, in, in St. Louis. This is oftentimes an individual's first uh, sort of introduction to the Midwest when they come to St. Louis. Many individuals may uh, be familiar with sort of your larger metropolitan areas, New York, Miami, um, but, you know, coming to the Midwest, its own environment, uh, individuals sort of need to feel comfortable and welcome here. Um, and so there are many, fortunately, resources available for those individuals here in St. Louis. We have the International Institute, uh, which is a great organization, Center for Survivors of Torture and War Trauma. Uh, very many, I, in, in listing these, I don't mean to, mm -hmm. to, to, to leave anyone out, uh, but many great organizations. But... I would say also that individuals uh, face the challenge of sort of just the fear of, of the unknown. Uh, 
Um, this uh, administration uh, has created, and, and this, is, this is documented in research, uh, so this administration has created sort of a, a cloud of fear for many individuals uh, who are immigrants to the United States. And so there's, there's certainly a need uh, for individuals to feel that uh, their sort of domicile, their residency, their status here in our community, be it St. Louis, Missouri, uh, the Midwest, the United States at large, uh, is not in limbo. Mm -hmm. Through your experience, both practicing and teaching, mm -hmm. is there anything that you can offer as advice to attorneys that are representing immigrants in the court of law? Well, to, to remain aware, to remain knowledgeable of the uh, evolution of the various policies, because that's where you're going to see most of the change is going to be at the policy level. Policies emanating from ICE, from CIS, from CBP. I don't expect to see much in the way of change, uh, statutory change. So being aware of the memos that are issued by the various bureaucratic entities within the Department of Homeland Security, also any memos issued uh, by the Department of Justice as it relates to enforcement, as well as the Department of State, uh, Department of State Cables, uh, and memos issued by the National Visa Center. All of, all of this can sort of fly beneath the radar, but uh, a, a strong and proficient uh, advocate would be aware of that these documents do exist and they're very important because it sort of gives you a snapshot into the thinking uh, and the policy agendas of the, of the various agencies. Well, I really want to thank you for joining us here today. It's been really interesting to have this conversation. Obviously, immigration law is, is constantly sort of shifting and changing, and this awareness is very important Absolutely. for lawyers that are looking to work in this area. So again, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I just wanted to let our listeners know that this is my last podcast. I've really enjoyed hosting SLU Law Summations, and I'm looking forward to turning this over to Maria Sakalis, who's going to be taking on the role of the new host. So thank you so much for all this time we've spent together, and I look forward to listening in the future. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law.